0: Hey guys. Due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, colon, Podcast Guys Talking To Erratic Errata. So get hype!
1: Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Welcome, faithful reader. Good Morning, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys talking Erratic Errata.
0: Podcast Guys talking Erratic Errata is a speedy recap of a practical
1: guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar grapple with the big questions about one of the ages' greatest novels, such as:
0: Will we ever learn more about these intriguing watchers of the
1: march? Is the Bumbling Conjurer okay? And... which calamity will this band kill first? I mean, the Warlock is in town. 73. Always send the comic relief in front if you suspect there's a trap. The gods won't allow you to be rid of them so easily. 200 Heroic Axioms, Author Unknown
0: Well, here we are in our first interlude chapter, but not an interlude chapter technically. Or rather, not just an interlude chapter?
1: Yeah, we get specifically heroic interlude, which I assume is probably just a, an early formatting experimentation, since eventually we just have interludes regardless of alignment, using the literal definition and not meaning, are they good or not? Because this is bill and we know we know what he's about
0: and we know what he's about is not it this chapter though does follow bill bill and the bard and the bumbler sorry bill and the bard who may have a bottomless bag and the bumbler and an observer from the watch whose name starts with b and it would work with my alliteration but i really don't understand the phonetic conventions of the lingual roots of that and I prefer not to attempt it without consulting someone and I fail to as well as the hunter and some thief from somewhere I expect that'll be a minor thing it's the thief not gonna be very important but they are walking along they think about the rebellion and they head towards Summerholm, ending with a small skirmish it's Much more checking in with the good guys than a terribly eventful chapter. And that's not a bad thing. At this point, a vibe check is, I think, where we should be at.
1: It's a great vibe check, and it does provide a little coloring for the next chapter, the next uh, Cat-focused chapter, main chapter. uh, Since we start to find out that these two groups, Cat and her legion and... uh, Williams' band of five are on a sort of collision course, and that uh, th- this lets us see why that's happening or where that's coming from, so that the reveal that there are heroes in Summer Home is not a surprise for the reader, just for Kat, which is great. The chapter but, begins. Oh,
0: well. Speaking of that, which is great. This is our first epigraph. That's from the two hundred heroic axioms, mm-hmm. which. I want to say initially, but really overall are kind of a joke if a universe expanding and totally straight faced joke, because it's open acknowledgement of the tropes that seem to work because this is trope world, world of the tropes. Right. And there are axioms, which by the very end, the last axiom we ever hear, no spoilers, but it's an early one. In a very late chapter. A legendary chapter, in fact. it They've grown familiar, they've grown homey, and to get that by then, to get the whole oomph and the bittersweet we've gone through the axiom so far as we're going to, we're beginning to build to that. I think that's cool. But more importantly, look at what this axiom is. Always send the comic relief in front if you suspect there's a trap. And this is our first chapter where we really see comic relief. There's humor in the guide throughout. I noted exactly where in Kat's first tussle with the other claimants, it seemed to shift from finding a tone to just the impeccable and unimpeachable humor of the guide. But this chapter introduces, I think, our first truly comic relief character. And I'd like to make a joke about Billy being comic relief or the Bard being comic relief because Billy's, they're both terrible. But Mm. racism and we find later sexism is no joke. And the Bard's comic relief in this chapter is 90% attempted sexual assault and the other 100% sexual harassment. And we don't need that in the world. So also not a joke.
1: Now, let's be fair to the Bard. Some of her comic relief is that she does a lot of alcohol.
0: And we all know alcoholism is a harmless field of humor.
1: Right. The uh, The chapter starts off with a brief introduction to, uh, to the Bard. She's drunk, and William doesn't like this. He's drunk again. Again. And following this, we hear that the other notable trait of the Bard that William doesn't care for is her constant, or repetitive at least, uh, attempts at some, you know, sexual assault. Uh, While William is bad, his dislike of this is a very normal human reaction to a terrible person doing terrible things. Great introduction to, uh, you know, our... No spoilers here, but hero, our representative of the gods above in the world, that yep. just a wonderful person all the way around. Am I right? What a what an introduction.
0: It is an introduction. And I think one that is very well done on levels because compared to the brutal efficiency of Catherine's team, well, many things go wrong. Catherine's surrounded by Hakram. She's got Juniper, she's got Aisha, she's got Ratface, who is competent when he's not being totally incompetent. She has a very powerful team with everything going wrong to her, and here we have a miserable group. But also, this is the Wandering Bard, and while she's the first thing in this chapter, by the end of it, she doesn't seem to be important. She's blending very effectively into the background by, I think, deliberately leaning into these nasty bardic stereotypes. It's utterly forgettable, other than maybe she has infinite alcohol or a bottomless bag. Either way, okay, that's a fine joke in the background. She glides under our radar as readers, I like to think.
1: For sure, yeah. Her her importance is revealed, s- not not necessarily slowly, but it's definitely not dumped on you from the beginning. She's a bard, and reading this chapter she's nothing more than a bard even her moment of serious investigation into william's story feels like a traveling storyteller who has knowledge of how stories work she's a bard when her field comes up she's competent within it she has a name she is the wandering bard it makes perfect sense that she would be good at being a bard it there's no deeper meaning to read into this on your first read through Going back, eh, you know, we we know what her deal is.
0: May I put you on the spot in a way I did not prepare or warn you for? Okay. Name three artifacts in the world of the guide.
1: The blade? Do I, their actual names? Because some of them don't really have that. They don't necessarily need one. Do okay. you mean the penitence blade here? Yep. Penitence blade, Catherine's you staff, and Catherine's black cloak. Uh, we also have the uh, exiled prince's set of armor, missing a helmet. I guess that's four.
0: Okay. You lose because the quest was three, but Dang. how many Penitent's Blades are there?
1: At least one.
0: Hmm. How many Catherine Stabs are there?
1: Exactly one.
0: How many Mantle of Woes are there? Exactly one. So, you'll understand my interest at seeing as Billy is complaining about the Bard's alcoholism and noting that she drank 20 bottles already from a knapsack big enough for five at most. He frustratedly notes if she'd managed to find a bottomless bag and she was using it for booze instead of something actually useful, William was going to have a fit, an actual bloody fit with screaming and everything. Yeah, we know Billy's a baby, but Mm -hmm. a bottomless bag, which is very world's most popular, but certainly not greatest TTRPG style where they have bags of holding Or any other artif near any other artifact is even in glory somewhat generic. Oh, Mm -hmm. you have apparat what's the plural of apparatus? Apparata? Apparati? apparati, Apparat apparat
1: Great question. I think you nailed it with that last one.
0: Where you have apparatopodes of qualish. There are multiple of everything. And here apparently Somebody manufactures specifically bottomless bags, or somebody has, or they exist, different than the artifacts we're accustomed to. Though, we are with a common magic item of Earth's protagonist, so who really knows?
1: Yeah, that's There are
0: soul boxes, or soul boxa? Soul boxopities? What's the plural of box? This has been one of your classic podcast, guys, talking to Rada Grada Bits.
1: The... The thing that I'm thinking of here is a bottomless bag has a name because it's a maybe a particular kind of enchantment that's relatively common because it's not as if magical doodads are impossible to find among important people named, for instance. I mean, just think of the collection, the the massive collection that a uh, Iros has or a... Um... Pyros
0: is actually a good point. I thought you were going to be going with something of a rogue, and thank you. I was going to say he did not count because what is your thing? That's
1: different. A Kairos or a rogue sorcerer, and yes, all of that. There are piles of little magical doodads. A bottomless bag might be something in that variety, I guess, rather than in the penitent's blade variety. Uh,
0: the real humor here, however, is he would be upset about storage space being hidden. And I just want to say, come sail away with Thief.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's true. Based on, I mean, clearly Thief is being a little secretive about her whole deal, and has almost no role in this chapter at all, aside from a brief scene where she annoys William. Good for her. And demonstrates the total dysfunction of the party. Right, 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 right. So... We, again, another character who's, it's, it's nice because the focus is a character who's important for the early development of Cat, and then he goes away and doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and then there are two characters sort of hidden within this chapter who end up being pivotal, incredibly important characters for the majority of the guide. And they are nothing at all in Thief and terrible stereotypes, basically, in The Bard. So that's a nice way to present this chapter.
0: It is. And we do see an important plot element kind of here, too, in the presence of one of the Jorah.
1: Yeah, there's uh, a member. uh, Yes, there is a member, potentially, of the Jorah, Watchers of the March, uh, who's here to help out a little bit, to kind of investigate, it seems like, uh, and... More importantly, we learn a little bit more about the Rebellion, that currently it's Callowin, but that there is a chance that the Jora will get involved when certain conditions are met, which aren't expounded upon here particularly. Um, but it's nice to see this side. Like we talked about what this chapter does, and it gives us a little bit of the political situation on the rebel side, that they are a faction within Callo who's seeking out... Assistance and allies elsewhere last time we got a, a william chapter and also when we got a cordelia chapter we learned about that side of things the proser side of things and here we're seeing what's going on uh with the duchy so uh you know a little little bit more context for what the actual stakes of this rebellion are and how big it could possibly be all important stuff within this crew uh we've already mentioned most of the people involved there is a fifth because of course it's a band of five and this last fella is um, sometimes the dividing line between a trope that shows up in the world and has power and a stereotype that a character steps into, unfortunately, unfortunately diegetically. From, a, from our standpoint, it's, you know, he's a, nice, he's a nice guy, I guess. I don't mean that. Uh, we have the hunter and uh, just to give a brief physical description of this man, the other named, the hunter, had shown up in Marchford wearing tight pants in a leather vest that left his pectorals on prominent display, the tribal tattoos adorning his entire body, only barely giving out the impressions that he wasn't mostly naked. The silver bells and fairy trinkets that were woven into his hair, those are fine. The But his the fact that we have a hunter who's in leathers that leave him basically naked and tribal tattoos and all of this just what a guy what a character
0: this whole party is formed of some of the characters of all time because <laughs> bard stereotype thief stereotype hunter stereotype lone swordsman anime protagonist and trash i forget the other member of the dream bumbling conjurer comic relief yep it's not they're not people yet to us, other than Billy, but he's bad people,
1: right? And of those characters, it there is a a, a pattern here uh, that we've sort of touched on before about where different names fit into, if not a hierarchy, then at least a sorting. There are names that are adjective noun, you know, the Black Knight, the Wandering Bard, the Bumbling conjurer, but the White Knight. The yeah, exactly. You've. The competent conjurer, the Mm -hmm. stationary bard. Yep, exactly. But there are also names that are broad and thus more impressive for their lack of specificity. Uh, We talked about Captain uh, in the past, but here we have two of those. I don't recall if Hunter has an adjective and it's just abbreviated here, but I don't think he does. Uh, But Thief. I believe you're right. Thief is just Thief. She's not the thief in the night she's not the uh the noble thief she you know she, she's not the uh talented cut purse or something like that she's the thief she has a skill set that lets her be the person in Colernia who is the thief again not really sure exactly what that means as far as how it compares to the ones that are more specific and in fact I think trying to do some sort of like power ranking of names would be an exercise in futility but it is interesting when some characters have some sort of huge domain that is theirs and uh, just want to point it out when we see it and see if we can notice any trends as we as we continue.
0: We'll have to keep an eye on that as we go forward. Of this course. thief, however, is not apparently all that great. She steals from her allies. She's going to rifle through the conjurer's bags again. And she's been eating her rations on the Duke of Lisa's personal silverware, which, honestly, good for you. Uh dab, as they say. Mm-hmm. Really, a nab. Or a ab. A ab. Call me Ishmael. But. Okay. <laughs> I'm proud of it. This is very good. And the thing is, though, I just want everyone to remember this low down, dirty, rotten thief who can't keep her hands out of her allies' pockets is
1: the forthcoming Princess of Calo. Yep. I love her. Good job, Vivian. She is wonderful. I mean, listen, she has some nice silverware. Of course, she deserves it. William... She deserves so much. She does. William disagrees, though. Uh, He notices her doing this and pushes down a sigh for what seems like the hundredth time. And, uh, sure, being annoyed that your party is dysfunctional is one thing, but coming from the Lone Swordsman, I mean, just imagine being the most insufferable person alive and still having the gall to be annoyed that somebody is rifling through somebody else's bags like william needs to practice some introspection and also to be way less racist
0: well we haven't seen any racism this chapter so let's hope it holds out
1: maybe he's reformed you're saying
0: if he is i'm willing to change some of my opinion on him
1: i was about people get better sure i was about to say maybe vivian is a good uh has been a good influence on him and then i remembered her whole Um, being with Hakram, and maybe she isn't the best person to be a good influence on somebody who's racist against orcs. Not yet. Right, not yet.
0: people can get better. If anyone listening to this is openly racist, fix yourself. So, that is the sum total of our protagonists. An observer and five heroes. Specifically, William and four other named.
1: And William did this unintentionally... Obviously, we're all familiar with the idea of the Band of Five, if not from outside media existing in the world where literature exists, uh, then at least from Practical Guide, where it comes up a number of times later on. But this is one of the early, maybe the first explicit reference to the Band of Five and the fact that it is the best pattern of collecting heroes for a heroic enterprise. Uh, So, you know, a little bit of... A little bit of meta-narrative analysis by William, of all people. Good to see.
0: No one said he wasn't insightful, just not introspective or decent or worthwhile. But he doesn't have the nicest band of five in history. Which is why he's glad that the 60 soldiers the Countess Marchford had granted him were as professional as it got, all of them former royal guards she would taken into her service after the conquest. And honestly? I, I, I totally get leading all the nobility was not on the table for political and story reasons. You had to leave the vestiges. Black did very well, and just didn't quite get it stamped out for those reasons. Sure. Killing off all the Royal Guard. I don't know how big that unit was, or those units. I Sure. Letting some of them live, probably cut down on the orphans, who would be the real problem. But that the Countess Marchford was permitted? That the one of the last great nobles was permitted to take in the super loyalist good soldiers? Huh. Hope that doesn't come back to bite anyone.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, it's, that, that is interesting. I, I, that definitely didn't trip me up at all when I was reading through it, but that is an interesting half sentence to, to read here now with that context.
0: So we know we've got the Royal Guard, we've got these names, and we've got this observer from the Jora, who we suspect, and by we I mean Billy, is a member of the Watch, or at least trained by it, and everybody knew the Watchers of the March had ancient sorceress tricks up their sleeves. And I think, like all of us, I read this and said, oh, so they do have the
1: normal months too. Did we all read that and think that? It says March. March, the word that exclusively means the f- the third month of the year and has no other meanings. Good point.
0: But I think this is really fun because everybody knew they had ancient sorceress tricks up their sleeves. Yes, correct. And when we find out more, it's just bad. It's, <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. It's going badlier. I love it. The Jorah are my favorite orcs, and I'm amazed that Billy is okay with one being with them.
1: The watch is... One of those really cool little world-building tidbits that comes up really briefly in the story. Frankly, there's a, a chunk of chapters where it's incredibly relevant, and other than that, we don't really hear much about it. But it's phenomenal when it's going on, and it really makes the world so much more interesting for being in it.
0: It's amazing that they're subservient to the crown of Calo, but considering they're really a self-governing zone, safety in numbers, I guess.
1: Yeah, a a granting of legitimacy because they're geographically small, maybe. Or maybe small population. Well, are you counting all of
0: the souls in the <laughs> soul tumor? That that's what it is. It's a soul tumor.
1: A soul tumor, yum.
0: You know, a tumor. The ancient civilization. They invented clay, which they used to talk about wheat. They had a lot of fun.
1: I cannot believe you just did that. Wait. Let me rephrase that. I can believe you just did that. I'm disappointed in you, and also proud of you.
0: But the uh, member of the watch notes that the scouts are returning, and Lieutenant Hawkins returns and tells them, tells Billy, "We have a problem."
1: Billy, being the animated protagonist that he is, responds with, "My life is a series of problems, Lieutenant." The drama in this man—like, did he? Flick his hair out of his eyes before he said that. Did lightning crash as he as he responded? Like my life is a series of problems. This kid.
0: I think we need to give him a little more slack. His life is a series of problems. Everything is so hard for him. And when we find out that there is a single line of an imperial patrol headed their way, the hero's fingers closed against the handle of his sword, feeling its hunger wake. To think there'd been a time when he thought that using a blade of legend was a privilege instead of a burden. Oh, this poor, poor baby. With his magical sword that eats his enemies. I'm just so sad for him. And not for all of the thousands of people who are dying because of his ill-informed and deeply racist rebellion.
1: Yeah. You learn that there's a bit more to his sword... But, yeah, th- this guy, Wolf. You know, are we going to spend the next entire book just hating on William every time he's on screen? I have been very
0: open about I am willing to see him reform.
1: Okay. So, yes, so, yes. we <laughs> are going to go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we're on the same page. But speaking of
0: ill-informed, he finds out there's a single line, and he asks, could we go around it? And Hawkins replies, they don't have goblins along, so it's possible. How does he know they don't have goblins along? Apparently he's right, but he is far too certain about this. Rule number one with goblins, stay away. Rule number two, maybe you didn't.
1: Those are, I mean, those are pretty good rules, I gotta say. Yeah, the certainty there... Rule number three, Catherine Counts. Right. The certainty there, these guys are formal me- former members of a royal guard... So
0: we know their track record against the legions.
1: But, right. Um, tish. So they're good at fighting, but Royal Guards don't tend to be what? Scouts and trackers? I don't know. Maybe the, the the watch has had some influence that on them and they can see goblin. Nope. Yeah, this is this is very bold of him, very overconfident to be certain.
0: But they aren't on a strategic level overconfident. They recognize that they're dealing with serious forces when they decide that they're going to have to slaughter this line of orcs they don't know their orcs yet but when they decide to slaughter the line of orcs we get the note general how are you going to go, go about this name i was saying awful i was feeling that okay general awful will notice that one of his patrols went missing the Jorah said after hawkins got out of earshot you took him by surprise at marchford but he is far from incompetent And then William monologues to us, dramatically, of course, in a... We get a lot of information from the narrator of each chapter, or from the viewpoint of each chapter, and when Cat does it, it's merely informative or a thought process. With Billy, all of these are soliloquies. I know they are. He goes to the corner of the stage, stands in the spotlight, and feels at us for a while, and... Honestly, he makes Hamlet look like a decent person, so good work. But he a that none of the generals were incompetent, and that was the worst part about fighting the Empire. And I gotta say, that is a huge victory on the part of Black. Almost every system, and militaries are no exception, sees at least some portion of the leadership having failed upwards or risen to the point of incompetence. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to find a... hierarchical organization where the hierarchies are necessarily better and in fact when it comes to middle management they're often worse and when it comes to ceos they're universally worse but blacks legions are kept in line for decades now good work though the old guard's getting old and we know they are because countess elizabeth has been stalemating with general sacker and Dale mating with Gerald, I don't care how good Countess Elizabeth is. She's really good. This is Sacker. Mm-hmm. I I don't care how surprised or under resourced or rocked and hard placed Sacker was. This is Sacker.
1: Yeah, it I was my first thought was, well, maybe in an open field the Countess has numbers and Sacker's legion is more focused on goblin y things. But this is a rebellion. We know that there haven't really been like pitched battles, particularly at this point, that's not really the the stage they're at. So maybe Sacker is not the I don't know counter insurrection expert, but that seems odd for um one a general uh, in the Dread Empire under Black and two General Sacker. So yeah, I, nice job, Countess Elizabeth. I'm
0: sure it's going to work out well for her. Yeah, William continues to soliloquize about the problems they're facing, and he notes that Eris has come out of nowhere with her mercenary armor. He notes that Eris has come out of nowhere with her mercenary army to take Dormer, and that the rebellion is losing momentum. But that's not the exact words in the text here. And as a man, I don't think I really get to say the word he uses to describe Eris, though many men feel the right. Uh, But he uses a gendered profanity to address her. Which, honestly, especially in this world, dude, bro, like, I I understand you're a racist, but I thought you'd draw the line at sexism. Insert that one meme from Community with, you can excuse racism? Notice I didn't say excuse racism. I'm not going to.
1: Yeah. He's just, ugh. It's, I, I, he's just so rough. It's like everything that could be bad about him is and it's all chalked up to him just being an angry dumb boy, he really is just the worst. Also, I had a thought, uh, sorry, I'm yeah. jumping back a bit, about General Sacker. Very nice. Do you recall what happened last time Sacker was on screen? She blew up? Her Half of her head blew up. Well, half of, half of her face blew up. So maybe there's a a situation here where Countess Elizabeth is taking advantage of the fact that her opponent in this field is... Grievously injured, or at least recovering from a grievous injury, maybe Sacker is, you know, now only unbelievably competent rather than literally top tier. The problem
0: is Sacker is still the best, unweakened of mind, but she has historically always insisted on personally calibrating the siege weaponry, and <laughs> it turns out that with one eye, the ballistae are a bit off.
1: Sure. Yep, there we go. We've, we've solved it. Countess Elizabeth, Countess Elizabeth is cheating by, you know, fighting somebody who's missing half their head. And I know it's just her face, but I choose to believe it's goblins oh, have. Goblins big faces. are just face. Yeah, they're all face. Speaking
0: of Billy is bad or whatever we were saying, mm-hmm. it becomes time to set out, and our noble leader, with Snowtime telling the other name to get in gear simply glaring silently at them until they were uncomfortable enough to fall in line. There are a lot of schools of leadership out there, and a lot of them are wrong, but even authoritarian, hierarchical, I say jump, you say how high kind of ordering, you still say jump. I I recognize you have angst, but instructions are helpful.
1: But when your entire being is powered by anime protagonist angst, you got to lean into it or you start losing your oomph.
0: You know, famed philosopher and utterly terrible person, Heidegger, did propose that when we experience angst, we are most capable of being aware of the design that we experience, which is all to say... William's in touch with reality.
1: That's a good joke. So the issue with being in touch with reality is that there is somebody in his party who is far, far more so than he is. And also pretty much just as insufferable as him. And William still thinks that he needs to be in charge of her and keep an eye on her.
0: I've referenced a number of memes this episode. Mm-hmm. And many others. Yes. But um, good job, Billy. You did it! You broke PGTE down to its bare essentials. But while Billy tries to keep an eye on the Bard to manage her, the member of the Watch had made it perfectly clear that, quote, she did not consider herself under the authority of anyone here. And it's such a power move to use language like, does not consider herself, mm-hmm. or do not consider myself, under the authority of anyone. As I mean, I don't submit to your authority, I refuse your authority, No. I don't even consider it. And the, I have thought about under whose authority I stand. Yep. And it's a Get good. Get wrecked. Get the wrecked, po- William, please. Get wrecked.
1: <laughs> the powerful thing there is, turns out, if you don't consider yourself un- under somebody's authority, unless they're willing to violently force you, you're not. And ta-da, it worked. Well, uh, speaking of violent
0: coercion, I have something to tell you about all legal authority. Yep, I, yep. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> really, the great anarchist texts are The Conquest of Bread and Practical Guide to Evil. Mm-hmm,
1: absolutely. And anything
0: Angela Davis ever wrote, of
1: course. Right, right, right. right.
0: Uh, but, the, all that aside, we've got the setup. The bard sidles over to Billy, and they start talking about um, his sword, if you know what I mean.
1: Naturally, he assumes that she's... Uh, being euphemistic and she's willing to just play along to bother him Eh, they're both terrible but she is a member of his team uh sensibly and in from his perspective and when she realizes what his blade is called the penitent's blade which is possessive not descriptive or purposeful i suppose we
0: instrumental
1: yeah it's not yeah
0: i don't know how language works who kind does? of literarian. wait <laughs> uh
1: she realizes that he is um, not as clean as he looks that there's something going on here that he's got a blade and is a penitent there's a party member who's being a little nosy a little pry to maybe a reasonable extent if rudely if, if being rude about it uh, and William Being William, of course, responds harshly with, that's got nothing to do with you. Just a great team. Healthy team dynamics, working together well. The synergy is off the charts. Wonderful. They just, this is a band of five that is going to go places. Nobody is going to die suddenly and unceremoniously within a few chapters here. It's all going well.
0: I predict we see at least 40% of them
1: at the very end, and no more than that. What a... Great and powerful prediction. I can't wait to see how, how that pans out. That said, the Bard is able to get a lot
0: from just the Blade's name.
1: He does, and she gives us a lot too. We get uh, a brief list of some choirs and a little bit of information about, if not the choirs themselves, how they interact with... Mortals, how they interact with people in dishing out favor. Uh, Forgive
0: me. I know that everyone who's listened to this is supposed to have read the whole book. You signed a contract by opening this podcast, and you mm-hmm. do owe us. You owe us damages if we spoiled anything. But when you say choir, you mean like the Vienna Boys Choir, right?
1: Right. They all sing. No, the uh, the choirs of the angels. You know, we've got. Uh, these celestial- the Vienna
0: angels choir
1: yes the Vienna angels these celestial groupings of powerful beings the the nature of the angels is something of the of the choirs is something that we get a bit more information on piece by piece mostly through the pilgrim going forward uh, well the pilgrim and the hierarch that's um, yeah, two of them mostly through the pilgrim the Hierarch, and Hanno uh, but they they have Realms. They have ideas that they use to, frankly, purify by their own definition, in stunning displays of violence. Uh, the the choirs that we get mentioned here. We see the the bard talks about the choir of judgment, but she doesn't think that that is. Uh, she doesn't think that is who William is beholden to because there's never more than one of those at a time. Those being they're chosen. Um, The story of the paladin, for lack of a better term here, uh, of judgment. Um, He then assumes that maybe he's with the Choir of Fortitude, but no, that's not it. The name, the Penitent's Blade, gives her the answer. He is aligned with the Choir of Contrition. Uh, We don't really know much about... Correct me if I'm wrong, the Choir of Fortitude doesn't really... Go up again, and maybe named here or there, but we don't really know anything about that, right?
0: I don't recall them playing a role,
1: no. Contrition is Billy, so we get, for this book, it's very important, and Judgment is... Well, Judgment is very important going forward. We'll, uh, we'll be talking There's about There's never more Adam.
0: than one of those at a time, but we know who the one of them is right now. And also, I don't know if Judgment is that important, because they kind of just step out mid-book, mid-series.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're very unimportant because of that. We will be talking a lot about Judgment going forward and about Judgment's champion, parentheses, S, and parentheses.
0: This is perhaps disappointing, if fascinating, to the Bard, because she usually doesn't sing songs about boys and girls who shook hands with contrition. She knows half a dozen, but, she says, I never liked singing tragedies. Yeah,
1: right. Which, I gotta say, fantastic line bard's awful but boy does she know how to deliver a, a one-liner things like that that's so good and it gives us uh, a little foreshadowing <laughs> where this is gonna be where this is gonna be going uh, but William of course responds to that with this isn't a story bard does does William know where he lives does he understand how this world works he's literally named he is a iteration of an incarnation... Eh, that's going too far. He is an iteration of a story. Like, that's his whole thing.
0: And the bard knows it. The next line... It's all a story, Lone Swordsman. The Asheron replied with a mirthless smile. Whew. I, I... That... Bard is worst. Yes, great, fine. But also, right there. a poor woman. A mirthless smile. She's been trapped in the story.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. That right there. It's all a story with a mirthless smile. That is a line on a reread. Holy cow. She is the, the worst. You know, she's up there. She's the Grilgrim and William. Well, uh, William's not in that tier. Grilgrim and Bard are the worst, and we're going to hate on them a lot. But also, just like, just like Tariq, fantastic character development. Like, we, it, we're going to talk about her a lot because we want to. Not, you know, she, it's great. They discuss... Well, she reveals... To us,
0: and to him that she knows that, his sword is an angel's wing, and his blood runs cold. How could she know? He wonders if she'd seen one of the angels, but decides she hasn't, because no one who had seen what he'd seen could ever remain so carefree. Gods, what he remembered from that night. Fire, brilliant fire, a light that sears deeper than darkness ever could. The House of Light had taught him that angels were beautiful beyond human ability to comprehend, but they had never said that beauty would be a terrible thing. It had changed him, bearing the full of a Hashmalim's presence. Hashmalim? Hashmalim. Bearing the full of a Hashmalim's presence. And I am immediately drawn to probably the most obvious Western literary analog to this claim, which would be Rainer Maria Rilke's Duino Elegies, uh, which, according to translator Stephen Mitchell, are widely acknowledged to be the greatest poem of the 20th century. And in the first elegy, Rilke writes in Stephen Mitchell's English translation, Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angels' hierarchies, and even if one of them pressed me suddenly against his heart, I would be consumed in that overwhelming existence. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we still are just able to endure, and we are so awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Every angel is terrifying, or, if you prefer the original, ein jeder Engel ist schrecklich. Rilke goes on to contemplate angels and beauty, and life and death, and the frankly overdrawn and academic distinction between the two. And as he goes through, he deals with other aspects of beauty being terror. In the second elegy, he notes, If the archangel, now perilous, from behind the stars, took even one step down toward us, our own heart, beating higher and higher, would beat us to death. Who are you? It's a very powerful contemplation of so much. Read the Elegies. I haven't even gotten to the River God of Blood, but I think it's a beautiful thing that E.E. draws on one of the more well-regarded and more universally read poetic traditions of the West. Rilke is quite possibly the most popular German writer in the English of the 20th century, if not of all time, ignoring certain philosophers and theologians. And by certain theologians, I mean exclusively Luther. (laughs) Sure. Bonhoeffer isn't read that widely, is he?
1: Compared to Luther, no.
0: But beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror. I think there's something to it. I think Krilke hits the nail on the head far more than Kant. And I think Billy gets it. What is the first thing that the angel said to the Virgin Mary in the Christian Gospels. Don't be a coward. Different translation than I'm accustomed to, but yeah. Be not afraid. Angels are freaky. The divine is incomprehensible. Faith traditions all over have looking upon a deity or touching a deity or knowing a deity can be destruction. So too are the choirs. I love this. This is the divine monstrosity I embrace and in a few years time i'm going to come back to the point about divine monstrosity and talk about feminine monstrosity and how ee avoids a pitfall but today it's not that day
1: (laughs) that is uh that's great thank you for the the context there the the real life culture context i would not have made that connection uh it's great stuff and uh we'll have to We'll have to keep talking about that as angels keep coming up, as the choirs keep coming up. Uh, and uh, yeah, good stuff all the way around.
0: it's my favorite of the German poets, so I was very grateful to have something in my book house,
1: in my wheel shelf. A wheel shelf sounds like a mistake.
0: And that's why I
1: chose it. Perfect.
0: The And I will not atone for the sin.
1: <laughs> William exposure to the choir taught him something it taught him the true price of atonement we know that he's it's choir of contrition from a few paragraphs ago but he's not just contrite he is seeking to atone he didn't shy away from whatever this price is apparently since he has the penitence blade i, I was going to make a joke here about uh was is was his sin that he's atoning for being racist but clearly not since The price of atonement for for William, as far as we can tell at this point, seems to be chopping up a bunch of orcs with an angel wing. I I know that there's more to it, and we'll we'll hear more from and about William going forward, but at this point, his angst feels so misplaced. He was given this... uh, maybe not misplaced, that's not the term I want to use. His angst feels like it is almost artificial in how he uses it It, it's he he has he did something wrong we're not exactly clear what it was at any given point uh if there was a specific instance or if it was just he was a generally bad guy but he has this he's supposed to be contrite and instead he's just grumpy at everybody he's supposed to be atoning and because he's atoning in the eyes of a choir that atonement is coming in the form of bloodshed we're getting we're starting to peel back the curtain a little bit on what the gods above are all about what the choirs are all about what good in this setting is all about it you know that curtain is completely thrown open by the end of the book but by the end of the series but at this point what we're seeing is hey these guys are just really all about violence they're their gift to somebody who is atoning for sins, the, the, the gift of contrition, is a sword that cuts things really good. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the more we learn about the choirs, the worse they are from a standpoint of a person, like a normal person, who <laughs> would be uh, displeased to be near them or to interact with them. And William, well, I mean, William's not a normal person, and displeasure is sort of his default state, but still.
0: We're hard on him and should be, but he has not been racist this chapter. Let's keep remembering that. And when the orcs show up, he isn't racist. He counts and assesses. He notes that there are 20 legionaries, which honestly, they've got a band of five. I don't know why anyone else is participating. And they're regulars by the look of their armor, not heavies or sappers, which are only rarely sent on patrols. No racism.
1: Right. A little note there. It's interesting that he... Gives us that information, the word rarely. I would imagine heavies being sent on patrols. At that point, it's not particularly a patrol. It's more of a projection of strength. It's saying, hey, look at our soldiers. Please, you know, if you attack them, you're going to get hurt. Uh, but regulars being on patrol, sure. Does Do legions not have a dedicated gouting corps? Do they not? I mean, not sending sappers, sure, they're... Uh, as much as sappers are the lightest of the normal infantry we see, they're also way more valuable, too valuable to be put in a position where they can be ambushed. Not that ambushes would ever happen to a legion patrol in Calo, but I, I don't know, the, sending regulars means the regulars, the regular legionaries are heavy infantry. These are people with large shields and heavy armor on patrol. I don't know, it, It's the legions here are not... They're versatile in their tactical applications, but their strategic applications seem to be pretty limited. It's just several thousand people in heavy armor with big shields and some siege equipment. Uh, I mean, I guess we know that the legions aren't big on, say, cavalry, but not even having some some light cavalry for scouting. I, I don't know. It's just it seems like an oversight on. Black's part, perhaps, to not have uh, people dedicated to the kind of thing that you would need to do once you are controlling a hostile land?
0: Well, it's not that they're wholly without riders, at least. I'm sure. using the term carefully because they do have wolf riders. Hunter has helped them avoid the ninth wolf riders on two occasions. But, yeah.
1: Right. Wolf riders, which would be wolf free rather than cavalry.
0: Is that the
1: etymology? Yes.
0: Like Chevalier. Yeah. Okay. So cavalry loop lupelery? Yeah, sure. So they have some loopery, but there's none going on these days and around here. Exactly. But he's just looking at enemy soldiers and finding and killing enemy soldiers it's not under most definitions racism and I will not accuse him of it for that. Uh killing people's a pretty rough choice, but inspiration I think he's got an argument for it here, so not my place. William does more tactics. He sees that, he says that the other group should have them surrounded by now. They figure out where everyone is. The only way out leads straight into the river. And then, oh, looks like the battle's beginning. Because yep. the officer in charge of the enemy line suddenly calls a halt.
1: And uh, calls a halt and then curses because they're noticing that they're being surrounded. And uh, remembering that this chapter is from Billy's perspective, we get the line spat out curses in their disgusting excuse for a language so uh, close I mean, yep Ugh. there it is we you know we had to wait for there to be orcs on screen for it to show up and uh it took let me do a double check here about one line oh no sorry about eight lines from the orcs are here to explicit racism
0: and not even like subtle at all not in their harsh impenetrable tongue
1: right <laughs> none of there's no there's no uh there's no coding they not coding there's no uh dog whistles or anything like that it's just a direct yep their language is gross which is just he's just a bad guy get over here
0: yourselves languages are so cool grow up
1: which we do see that uh, we get another perspective on carsum coming up here
0: yes um The legionaries slowly form a square and start slamming their shields into the ground and with their voice echoing as one. I I enjoy that the narration has something just poetic here. Voice echoing Mm. as one doesn't necessarily mean explicitly that they don't have a disgusting language, though we get diegetic counterpoint soon. But still, Mm. there's something beautiful about that, and we can suspect Billy is wrong, Voice echoing as one, they started calling out words. And they started calling words out in the same tongue. And Billy asks, "What are they casting?" Even though he's looking at soldiers in regular armor in the Legions of Terror, who have pretty standard ways of doing things. And these are clearly not mages, and they're not sending mage lines to scout because they don't do that. And they're not dressed like them, and they're not even really engaging with anything magical. And also, you're a named person, so you should probably be able to feel the magic titanine and you'll taste the magic mm-hmm. it, it, it'll taste like sawdust in your racist mouth i mean come on he's supposed to lead a rebellion and the idiot doesn't even know legion basics it, there are
1: handbooks steal and read yeah. one yep it's just he is very much man if he weren't such a bad guy he would i would feel i would love to lovingly call him a himbo because his brain is just do blood to atone for sin like there's nothing else going on upstairs but
0: wrong corner of the political compass though you've got to have head empty and heart full and this is head empty and heart empty
1: well actually both are full it's just of hate
0: ah head empty and heart empty it's just comatose (laughs) yeah
1: that's just you're not alive uh head empty heart empty dead king head empty heart empty veins empty lungs empty uh not doing well doing pretty well Okay, Actually, the, the dead king is currently in the most enviable
0: position in the continent. He has everything he could want. And his
1: head's not and, empty. It's full of birds. Uh, but we get that they're not casting a spell. They're not doing anything mystical. They are singing. It's uh, the chant of the dead, a, a, an orc hymn, I that is that uh, is performed when, maybe performed is the wrong word, that is sung when you are entering a battle that you are not expecting to survive, that you're not expecting to make it home from. Um, and it's not a mourning thing. It's not a, uh, I don't know, a dirge. It, because before they sing it, before they, they slam their shields down to do the, to set the time for this chant, uh, we get that, they, that the lieutenant calls something out and is met with scattered laughs. Uh, it, this is a, you know, not to use too loaded of a term, but a warrior culture, a fighting culture, culture going up and ready to die in battle and ready to do it in the most metal way possible. Well, leading up to it. They kind of just get shredded here because there's heroes, but you know what I mean. So the, the chant of the dead is as follows. We, broken spears, shattered shields, come to die. We, remnant lost, forlorn hope, come to die. We... Carrion feeders, grave fillers, come to die. We ruined children stand ready. Come to die. The orcs, the the, the lines that they give themselves here, the the titles, carrion feeders, grave. Pillars, ruin children we don't know what karsum exactly uh, exactly sounds like but if it's producing this it sounds fantastic no there is no way around that not that there are languages that inherently sound bad i don't think i think that's just not possible they can uh, that's nothing william's wrong but we also hear from uh from the uh the jorah leader here the observer who's uh, along with William, that Karsum is a beautiful tongue, well-suited to poetry, which I have to say is fantastic. We get, every time Karsum shows up, it's sort of not, it's done by, done by, the language is done. It's in situations either where Cat is talking to an orc or where it's orcs on their own. And what we know about orcs for the most part is that they're the war people. They're very good at it. They do it a lot. They like it. They're a culture that has warfare and fighting as a pretty important pillar within it and then we hear that their tongue is well suited to poetry it's it's great i i love this this whole bit the the chant the the response of uh of the the jorah here it's it's great and then william uh chimes in
0: and on that point if i may just unload a personal bugbear of mine i have for many years studied and taught the German language. And there's a perception of German in the United States, at the very least, hardly universal, but certainly widespread, that it is some kind of harsh and angry language. And this is partially due to a lot of language-based comical routines that are probably in somewhat poor taste, relying on some of the Heavier consonanty sounds of German, the throat noises. <gasps> Ooh, we don't have that in English. Therefore, that's a bad sound, even though there are throat noises in French and Spanish, which are more well regarded typically. But in a language which has, on no substantial basis, that kind of reputation in my country, we still have to say, esteemed translators of everything from the Iliad to well, Rilke, Stephen Mitchell noting that German poetry, that Rilke's work, widely acknowledged to be the greatest poem of the 20th century. There is no such thing as a merely harsh language. Also, German has so many smooth noises as well that English has in lesser amounts or not at all, and languages have many sides to them. Grow up. But, Billy doesn't get that kind of thing. Because his response to carsoom being well-suited to poetry is merely wolves howl at the moon. That does not detract from the necessity of putting them down. And like, dude, do you know how ecology works? Do you know the story of the wolves of Yosemite? Yellowstone? They're basically the same park, right?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Some park or another, they got rid of all the wolves, and then all the mesopredators rose, and all the prey animals rose, and everything was bad. And then the wolves came back, and everything got better. Because wolves are part of the ecosystem. You, you should not go out and kill wolves. Sometimes you need to go out and kill a wolf. Fine. Sure. Sometimes you have to stop someone from hurting you. Sometimes you're fighting a war against the orcs. Fine. Wolves are not inherently bad. And orcs are also people, which are more important than animals. I, I, I'm willing to take that stance. I know it's not universally approved, but it's pretty universally approved, and I'm taking it anyway. William! Billy! And... Bad comparison. Also, yep. don't compare people to animals, because that's... Especially pest animals wolves are a weird choice but comparison to vermin especially is often a precursor to genocide and i know you're all about that genocide stop
1: wolves wolves are a weird choice because wolves when compared to humans it's often done favorably for the humans that they're, you know the hunter the the powerful yeah. as much as the culture around this is absolute garbage the alpha like that kind of thing it, it's it's done in that way the, and he still opts for that rather than any number of... I don't know. It, it's an interesting choice. But then the terminology, the language he uses here, putting them down. Ugh, this this man. Who boy. That's all I have to say. This man.
0: And while wolves are often compared favorably to humans or used positively, it's worth noting that Billy seems to be something of a caninophobe. He's not a dog boy.
1: Yeah. Uh, when he charges into the, the the orcs here the patrols um, he just kills them easily he's unnamed. They're a name their regular infantry uh, this isn't a, any kind of moral stance it's easy for him to kill them and he does uh, also he has a sword that cuts through shields and bones very easily shields bones armor whatever uh, but as he he refers to himself in this text as a meat grinder or, or refers to the orcs as being pushed into him like meat into a grinder, his blade scything through the screaming monsters as they fought and died like dogs. Again, back on the their animals, back on the dehumanizing, and I know that's not the right term here because they're not humans, but dehumanizing is a term that has weight to it that I want to use here because it does apply in concept, if not in literal definition. He is taking away their personhood, because they're not him. It, it's it's mon. I mean, he uses in these last few paragraphs in during the fight. He refers to orcs as monsters three times in uh, three paragraphs, not including um, a dialogue. This guy is so extremely bigoted. And I have to say, this is such a bad look for contrition. We've talked about that before. The, the line between good and evil is so much just... It doesn't... Those words don't mean what you and I would think they mean. Uh, but Contrition just being so on board with this guy. Not a good look unless they are on board with human supremacy, I guess. In which case, yikes. I wonder how the guide would feel if the final boss
0: wasn't what it is where we really are fighting monsters. We find out what monsters are, because outside of certain praisey abominations, which are definitionally and appropriately deemed monsters, because, come on, the Tapirs? The
1: Tapirs. I mean, yeah.
0: But the Dead King is an absolutely perfect foe for an unproblematic crusade. And I think that's great, because the Age of Wonders needs to end on an unproblematic crusade. And there are complications, like the Serenity. but really uncomplicated as can be right morally he, logistically horrifying
1: he is an uncomplicated villain this story the setting add complications to that and that you know to beat and that's interesting that's great but, but he's yes. a likable villain oh for sure but I mean his his foot soldiers are mindless corpses puppeted by his will you know like you can throw weapons at those all day long and there's no moral qualms to be had.
0: If you put a zombie in a part. cage and you're delighted in doing whatever you could to try to torture it i'd worry about you but you're not actually doing anything bad you're just right
1: cultivating something bad in yourself exactly you know, i i said that i think the only place where i guess there is room for moral qualms about fighting the undead coming from a culture that has a distinct problem with interacting with corpses which does exist so there. there, there is True. that, I suppose, but I the, I imagine a lot of people would see destroying a zombie as the lesser evil than allowing a zombie to exist, so, you know. So, speaking of
0: things that can often be regarded as virtuous, such as respect for the dead, the orcs did not break, but it mattered little. I just want to point out that these monsters are showing loyalty, they're showing mutual defense, they're showing bravery.
1: Yeah, it- it's... For the second time, because we saw in William's last uh, point of view area, area is a fun word there, In, in William's last perspective section of the work, he referred to the 12th, a quarter of the 12th, or something like that, being annihilated by his forces, and even there, he had to slip in a, it would have been admirable if it hadn't been for the fact that it was all orcs, and you know, they're not people, so it's meaningless.
0: You're meaningless.
1: Wow, okay. Uh... After the battle, you William
0: are meaningless. Right.
1: <laughs> After the battle, William stands in the midst of this carpet of corpses, he says, uh, William "Center of a ring of corpses." It's a corset,
0: carp, carpset. There you corpuset. go. That's a
1: good. You're you're nailing it, this one.
0: I am. <laughs>
1: William stood in the center of a ring of corpses, the grisly monument to his skill, unfolding like the petals. Blah blah blah. He's trying to be. Uh, you know, cool and poetic about the fact that he is furthering his genocide. But a monument to his skill is quite the claim. Like, let's not get carried away here, William. You have a name. You have four other heroes. You outnumbered them, if I remember correctly, three to one. You have an artifact. This isn't a monument to your skill. This is a monument to, yes, if you go into a fight where you drastically overpower and outmatch your opponent's you're you're gonna win, and that's not gonna go well for them. I don't think skill really played into this at all. It it was an ambush, and every single factor that could be in your favor was.
0: So well, speaking of drastically overpowering opponents, they've got quite the goal. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, we talked recently about how this web serial format is absolutely just knocked out of the park by uh, by EE uh, with chapters ending on such high notes. This one ends on. Definitely an ambition. We get uh, we get William saying when we got there, Summer Home, they were going to break a legend. They were going to kill a calamity. Dun
0: dun dun.
1: Yeah, of course you are, William. Good good luck, bud. But we'll have to uh, see whether or not he's successful. Spoiler alert. Because much like William, we're running out of time. <laughs> yeah, because... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that that's that's all we've got for, for this chapter and episode join us next
0: week on podcast guys talking to reddit Greta, as we discuss
1: a city getting out of hand a calamity getting out of work and a hyphen getting out again
0: and we all know what that means Wade in their blood Guys, talking to Greta is a fan made podcast discussing Rita Greta's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguide to evil. music for this episode was To Meet the Light by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Medieval Fantasy by Lexen Music. Background for The Chant of the Dead was Anxious March Full by Light Saturation. Post-chant horn was Scary Horn by Pixabay. Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Defenders of the Truth by Daddy S Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by writing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray. Our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named. Our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 4, Return.